Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. So today is, is definitely an interesting show because there's so many, like as I was doing my background research on David and I'm sitting here looking at all this different informations and nuances of things that I want to speak about. So it kind of like I have a laundry list of things that we're going to try to squeeze into one hour and coming up with his name. Cause you know, I always give whoever I'm interviewing a particular, um, a nickname. So I was like, okay, I could call him the music boss. I was like, but no, nah, he's not his music. But what, what, what is a really a better and detailed name? So in this case, I'm going to name him the instrumental boss for many different reasons. And as we discuss it, we'll be able to disclose why we're doing that. So David, without further ado, why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are and what we're going to talk about today? Well, thank you for, first of all, for inviting me on your show. And this is going to be a fun hour. I, I just know it is. And uh, I, I grew up in East Tennessee. I'm a Tennessee hillbilly, I guess you could say. And I, I grew up in a musical family up in uh, the mountains of East Tennessee. And my mother, my mother and father both played instruments. My, my mom and dad played piano. My, my grandmother Combs, she was only four foot eight and she was born in 1894. So she's an old timer, but she played the old pump organ. You may not even know what that is. It's, a, it's an instrument that was before electricity. You, you pump the air through the organ with your feet and uh, she could make that organ talk. And, and she also loved to play uh, an instrument called the auto harp. It's a, an old timey instrument, stringed instrument, and, and she loved to play and sing. So I grew up around music all my life and, and I went to high school, you know, participated in the high school chorus and I love singing and, and just music in general. Went to college, sang in the university choir, but I was a math major, a physics minor. So I'm a, I'm a kind of a techie kind of person. I started my first job in Western Electric as a computer programmer. I programmed big mainframe computers. That was my first job. And that was in 1969 when I first started my job. And then I worked at that for many years, but kept my music as a hobby, uh, you know, music in the evenings and at, at church and so forth. But by 1981, I had written a song. I didn't really realize I had written it. I had sat down at the piano and played it. You've probably heard this before. Creativity kind of comes in, in strange directions. I was playing my piano one day after tuning my piano. It was a hundred-year-old piano. It wouldn't hold its tune. So I had to get out my tuning hammer, and I'd tune it up to where it sounded halfway decent. And then I'd love to play something pretty. Well, this particular time, I sat down at the piano, and I just started playing this song. Now, it was the same as if that song had existed a million years, as far as I was concerned. It just sounded like familiar to me. And I played it, and it had a verse and a chorus, and it sounded really pretty. And I didn't think much about it. And then a couple of days later, my wife, Linda, came home from work, and she says, Dave, what is the name of this song I've had stuck in my head all day long? I'm, you know how you get a song hung? I think they call it an earworm. You, you hum it all day long. It's just there. She says, what's the name of this? And she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, it doesn't have a name. And she says, what do you mean it doesn't have a name? You play it on the piano all the time. I said, well, it's just something I made up. And so she said, really? 
have you written it down? Uh, I said, no, I, I've got it up here in my mind. You know, I've, and she said, no, you, you, <laughs> you need to write it down because something might happen to you and then that song would be gone. So I did write it down. Well, fast forward about uh, two more years and some friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. And so they asked me and Linda to be her godparents. Of course, we accepted and at her christening service, Linda and I were sitting there and at the front of the church was this beautiful grand piano. And uh, at the end of the formal service, I whispered to Linda, I said, do you think I could play this little song, this little tune now, and maybe it would be appropriate in this setting? And she said, yeah. So I went up to the family and, and said, it, would it be okay if I played a song on the piano right now? And they said, sure. I sat down and I began to play this tune. And about halfway through the tune, I hear all this sniffling in the crowd, in the crowd. You know, the, the, the emotion is beginning to, to show and the people starting to tear up. And I, I realized my eyes were leaking a little bit too. You know, I had some tears in my eyes. It was a very emotional experience. And at the end of the song, I looked up on, at little Rachel being held in the arms of her mother. And I said, look, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And, you know, we had tried to think of a name for this tune for, you know, the two or three years, but nothing ever fit. But then Rachel's song and that music, perfect, just perfect fit. So that's how it got its name. And that was the beginning of my journey with my music. Uh, you know, I've, I've written a book you can see here on my left called Touched by the Music. Well, that's the stories that kind of begin with that one song of Rachel's song and and evolve into a career that finally enabled me to quit my job mm -hmm. uh, at AT&T and go full time into my music. So it's, it's been a long way from one song to have written over 120 with 15 albums and selling my music from just the tiny little places in the beginning to gift shops all over the country to now in over the Internet, online through streaming and downloads all over the whole world. So it's been quite a quite a journey from the beginning to that end. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean, that, 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 that's that's a, a hell of a story. So I, I just want to kind of like it, and I'm making mental notes so we can kind of unpack some of that. So in the beginning, you were talking about being a college student that had a a math background, and then you know, mm -hmm. as I did my due diligence, you also got like an MBA in business as well. So with, with these two different things, like how did you take these two formulas and become a musician? Like how did that happen? Well, I think the musician part of it was kind of in, ingrained in me from the beginning. It was the, the matter of how do you take something that you you're, you're have a passion about, that you're good at, and that you're gifted with, how do you take that and evolve it from just a, quote, hobby or just something you do to something that you can make it a central part of your life and career? Mm -hmm. You know, I, was, I had worked for a Western Electric AT&T for 22 and a half years. You know, in various levels of management, you know, I, I had been the boss of over a thousand people in a big factory before. You know, it was it was quite a quite a job. I, I loved my job at Western Electric AT&T. Don't get me wrong, but I was not uh, I wasn't I didn't own it. You know, I was just an employee. And even though you're you're you have employees working for you, but you don't own the company. And I had always had that dream of owning my own business. And I'm kind of an entrepreneur at heart. Every time I would see an idea or something, I would always explore it and see if it would work into something. And up to that point, <laughs> nothing had ever really worked out. But 
this this thing with my music took on a life of its own, and it it began began to uh, reveal itself to me as being a potential business. Now, you know, like you said, I have my MBA from Wake Forest University, so I'm a business person. I'm a very, as you can imagine, I'm a very analytical person. So I'm always looking for ways to d develop a business model or a, do something that will be a a profitable venture for, for me or for somebody else for that matter. And so the beginning of the, the transition from just being the music as a hobby or an interest to a business, music as a business and a way of making a living, <clears throat> that took place obviously gradually over time, but the, the real impetus was once I got Rachel's song recorded and got it played on the radio, and saw the overwhelming response from the listeners. I mean, these radio stations would tell me their phones would just light up and lock up when, when they played Rachel's song. People wanted to know, what is that you just played? So I knew there was some, some pull, some draw, some attraction from the consuming public to that music. And so I got to thinking, well, you know, maybe I should try to find ways to sell copies of my music. And... <laughs> In SA, I was very naive. I, I thought because people love my music on the radio, and, it, and I had it played on every le easy listening station in the entire United States. That's another whole story of how I did that. But once I did that, I thought, well, these people in the record stores, now we had record stores way back then. We don't have hardly <laughs> those anymore. But back then, it was, I think it was Record Bar, and I forget the names of some of the others, but that's all they did was sell records. And so I thought, well, I'm going to walk in these stores and the, and the corporate folks are going to say, man, we've been waiting for you to show up and <laughs> so we can sell your music in our store. Well, was I in for a rude awakening? The, uh, they, never, they didn't want to talk to me. I didn't have a big name like a Michael Jackson or you know, a Randy Travis or somebody, some other big name that was out on tour. So I was really kind of shocked that it wasn't about necessarily the music that they were interested in. They were only interested in the promotional capability and the, all the numbers and the popularity, all that kind of thing. So it wasn't about the music. So I was kind of, this is one of those places where you stop and say, well, now that didn't work. Mm -hmm. But I know that people like my music. I mean, I hear from, I began to get fan mail. People writing me from all over the world, literally saying how much my music had touched their life. So I thought, well, I know they've got, I've got to find a way. Well, it kind of happened by accident. Sometimes you plan things and, and think it all through and execute your plan. And sometimes something comes at you from right out of the blue that you didn't even expect. And that happened to me with a lady that worked behind me in a cubicle behind me where I was working at AT&T. She had a best friend who owned a gift shop. And she says, Dave, would you give me one of your Rachel song CDs so I can give my friend Jane that owns the shop, a copy of it so she can play it in her store. You know, she, she has a CD player and they play music in it. And I said, well, sure. I gave her one. And the, the name of the store is called America. Still exists. There's some stores around, but it sells patriotic Americana kind of things, you know, flags and, you know, everything patriotic. So uh, I didn't think much about it. And two or three days later, I get a phone call. And it's from this lady, Jane, that owns the store. And she says, Dave, <clears throat> you got to help me out. She said, I've been playing your CD of Rachel's song in my store. And every time it comes on, 
everybody in the shop comes over to the counter and says, Jane, do you have that for sale? I, I'd like to take that home with me. And she said, I, of course, didn't. I said, well, we, we, can, rem we can remedy that. So I arranged to sell her some CDs and cassette tapes at the time at wholesale. And so that evening, my, Linda and I boxed up a box of tapes and CDs. And we, and we were living in Maryland at the time. So we went down. Her shop was in Old Town, Alexandria. You're probably familiar with Old Town. It's a, right on the, the uh, Potomac River there. It's a beautiful tourist town, historic town. But her shop was right on King Street, right on the main drag of, of Old Town. So I, we drove down there. I took her a box of the tapes and CDs. I, maybe it was 10 or 12 of them. And I didn't think much about it. About uh, less than a week later, I get another phone call. Dave, <clears throat> I'm out of those. you got to send me some more. And how about doubling the order this time? <laughs> so I boxed them up that evening, trips down to Old Town, took them to her. And Linda and I made that trip to Old Town, Alexandria, delivering tapes and CDs to, to Jane every week, probably for a year and a half to two years. It was amazing. She sold thousands and thousands of tapes and CDs in that one little shop playing that one album of Rachel's song. And so that's when my MBA and my uh, business uh, entrepreneurship kicked in. I, I looked at the figures. I, you know, I keep I kept good records of how many I, she bought and how much they cost me and sold them to her. I knew what my gross profit was, and I thought this is this that's a pretty good model here. So I took that. I made me a spreadsheet. <laughs> One column was that business model of of her shop, and I said, Linda, I wonder if there's not one gift shop like that in every state. Let's just take 50. You know, if I had 50 of those shops like hers, what would it look like? Column two is column one times 50. Now you look down to, oh, that bottom line gross profit's looking pretty good. Okay, you're getting the picture here. I said, well, what if we had just five, you know, in every state? That's 250, just 250 gift shops. Put that over here and I said, Landa, come here, look at this, look at this. That's twice what I make at work. <laughs> and so then's when the light bulb went off that this was the model that I needed to replicate. And so I got really busy. But that is the principle that I think, and I talk about this a lot, is the principle of entrepreneurship of you find a product that work, that is really good product. You find a, a know your customers and know a, a way to get it to the customers. You find a an outlet, a way of getting it to a small sampling of how you're going to make it work. You make sure that that works. Mm -hmm. And once you know that, you just replicate the heck out of it as much as you can, because you know it's it, the numbers are just going to be that number times whatever. Mm -hmm. So you start with a good, solid business model. And that's what I did with my music. And I grew to over a thousand gift shops mm -hmm. over the entire country eventually. Nice. And that that's uh, that that enabled me to quit my job in 1992, working a very well-paying job at AT and T, and do nothing but my music full time from from that point forward. So let, let's just back it up. I mean, part of what you said was, and, and obviously I did my due diligence and I, and I watched some interviews with you before, and you was talking about like your strategy that you use. And in today's world, someone can go online, they can do Google and figure out how to contact a particular vendor. And in your case, you were talking about national radio syndications. So 
you contacted hundreds of radio stations and you got your music put on those radio stations, which then led you into what you're talking about right now in the gift right. stores. So let's talk about that. Like, I mean, at a time frame, I, I'm, I'm assuming it was something like late 80s, early 90s when there was mm-hmm. not Google. How did <laughs> you figure out how to contact all those radio stations? Well, I, I found uh, and, and I, it may still exist, but I think it was called Radio and Records. It was R and R magazine. It was a publication put out by the uh, the radio uh, industry, kind of, so to speak. And that that R and R publication, they had a, a a listing you could buy of all the radio stations in the entire country and what their format was and the, who the who the program director, all that in, contact information. But it was a it was a physical document that I had to purchase uh, through Radio and Records. And that's how I ended up finding a way to get in touch with them. Now, it would have been wonderful if we'd had Google back then where I, all I had to do was type it in and go. But using that list of, of radio stations is where I started calling. And, and I only called easy listening stations. We don't have very many of those left anymore. Everything else is pop and rock and all the different genres. But easy listening is I think they they call it elevator music, and it's just kind of relegated to the side for us old folks. <laughs> and uh, but back then there were about I think about four hundred stations across the country that were that were that format. Well, that was a lot of phone calling. I I didn't call all four hundred of those because eventually, when I would call some radio stations, they'd say, "Well, um, sorry, we don't do our own programming. You'll you'll need to call uh, Bonneville Broadcasting up in Chicago or wherever they are." They do our programming for us. I said, oh, really? And so I got the name of the easy listening program director for Bonneville Broadcasting. I, I wish I remembered his name. He, he's since passed away, but he, I sent him Rachel's song. <laughs> he loved it. Thank God he did. And so he, he basically said, man, I will put this on all my easy listening radio stations. So I went from just, you know, maybe 30, 40 radio stations that I had gotten on my own. Suddenly he's programming 200 and instantly my music goes bam on 200 radio stations. And you can imagine the, the impact of that. The feedback started really rolling in. And uh, so that's, that's how I did it back then. Of course, today you just jump on Google or, or yeah, do yeah. an electronic thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the reason why I ask that is it's kind of like, you know, you're talking to entrepreneurs, you're talking to business owners, but what you were demonstrating in those moments was like grit, you know, not only understanding your market sector, not only understanding marketing and understanding business strategy, but you had enough grit to, to stick to it. Cause I'm sure when you contact, let's say a hundred radio stations, doors get slammed in your face left and right. Oh, so my yeah. next question is, is like, what's the worst example of a radio station or someone shutting the door in front of you? And how did you overcome that? Well, it, it, this wasn't really a radio station. This was a, a record chain. I went to a, a, a special, it, this, this, the, the Washington, D.C. Songwriters Association had an annual thing where they brought in people from the music industry into Washington as a showcase kind of thing where you could listen to experts from different fields and, you know, the, the record companies, the record stores, the, they bring songwriters in, you know, big names and it's just a great day on a Saturday. Well, part of the people that came, one of the representatives was from this uh, record bar uh, chain of stores. And I went, I had gone every time during that the conference when they had the breakout sessions and they you'd have a chance to go and listen to a panel discussion and they'd open it up for questions. I'd always stand up and get the microphone and say, 
Could you uh, all give me any advice about how I might possibly market my music, which is uh, instrumental, soothing, relaxing kind of music? And they would all kind of look at each other like, man, this is foreign to me. You know, they're all, they were, there were young people. Their only interest was in rock and roll and, and the, the current pop music. And I just got no encouragement. You know, they didn't know, they wouldn't give me any advice. And so, and I did this several times during that Saturday. It was an all day long thing. And by the end of the day, I had had, a, a, I call them my groupies. There were a bunch of people that didn't have the, the, the uh, fortitude like I did to stand up and ask the questions, but they, they wanted to know too, but they wanted me to ask the question. So I had a group of people following me around asking, <laughs> asking all these questions. And in the, they had a special session in the afternoon uh, around the, 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 wall, the, the walls of this big uh, ballroom. All these uh, businesses and experts were there. You could go up one-on-one -on -one and, and ask somebody a question. So I went over to this record bar. Who I had been trying to get a way to sell my music in record bar for a long time on my own. I'd call. They wouldn't even return my phone call or anything. So I said, I've got this guy cornered now. So I'm going to ask him right here. So I walked up to this, his table where he was there and he was a young fella, probably know, maybe 25 years old. I was only maybe 35. So I was just 10 years older than him, but I, I basically told him what I was wanting to uh, have record bar carry my music. And he, he, I started to hand him my, my little promo packet that I had prepared and he just kind of, you know, pushed, pushed it away from me, you know, like, and I, I don't, I don't bother with it. Don't, don't even bother. Uh, there's nothing we can do for you. And I said, at this point, I was, I was getting a little frustrated and probably a little angry. And I said, young fellow, I said, I want you to take this packet with the, my CD of Rachel's song in it. And I want you to hang on to it because I promise you that someday you're going to pull that out and say, I missed an opportunity to carry this guy's music. And the guy, the whole, the crowd that was behind me, went, <laughs> they were applauding. And so that was one of the, it, it, it sticks in my mind because that was probably the most personal and the most direct rejection that I ever got from anybody where they didn't even want me to hand them something to, to listen to. So, wow. uh, definitely, definitely interesting. I mean, so on this road to success, right. And, and the perception of you being an overnight success is kind of skewed in, in this particular conversation. So my next question is like, how long did it take you to master the art of selling music to where you are right now? Wow. That is a long journey because as you, as we've just discussed, 86 is when I recorded it. 88 is when I've had my first album of additional songs that I had written. Once I realized I needed to write some more. And then, so I really did an about an album a year from 1988 to about the year 2000. So I have a total of 15 albums okay. and it, you know, it takes a long time to, or for me, it did to write enough music, enough original songs for an album. You know, you need to write 15, 16, 17 songs to have enough for an entire album. And so the, this evolution really took place very slow. It, it kind of went, it most, if you graph out most startup businesses or, or new businesses, the graph of their success goes, it, it has kind of a slow ramp to start with. Then it has a, a kind of a steep up hmm. and then it, it top kind of peaks and then there's a trail off at the end, you know, when the, the life of it is kind of, it's, it's matured. Well, my, my ramp up did not really start 
until number one, the radio stations all over the country started playing it. Mm-hmm. And number two, the gift shops all over the country that I had gotten uh, was probably about 1991, somewhere around there, by the time I had gotten it really way up there. And so it was a really a slow but steady climb with a determination on my part, knowing that I was on the right track and all I needed to do, because I was still working, you know, prior to my quitting my job in 92, I was still working. I had to do all this in the evenings and weekends. So, but I would work and work and work on the phone or on weekends, we'd get in the car and go travel and see places and talk to people and and it was one of the things that really helped was publicity. And as you know, there is no substitute for publicity. And uh, there's a, I, in 1994, I got a phone call from a lady, a fan, who said, who told me how much my music had meant to her. I happened to be the one that answered the phone that day. And, and her name was Roberta Messner. And Roberta told me that she had a disease. I think they call it elephantitis is the, is the general name of it, but it's one where your skin attacks itself and you get grotesque growths on your face and skin. And she, she had had to have like, I don't know, 30, 40 surgeries to help take care of that situation. And very, very painful. She said the pain is excruciating. And she said that your, my music had been the one thing that had helped her through her, her painful situations. Listening to my music had taken her mind off the pain and had really been helpful. And then she was very inquisitive. She started, well, well, tell me about, like you and I, tell me about Rachel's song. How did you write that? And and how did you end up quitting your job and all that? And she says, I am a writer for Guideposts Magazine. And I thought, okay, because I knew about Guideposts Magazine. And she said, I would love to tell your story through an article in Guideposts Magazine. And it would be under your name. I would write it for you, but we would would submit it. She said, would you give me permission to ask guideposts if they'd be interested in your story? I Well, sure, of course. Well, I had no idea where, the, where this was going to lead. And a few days later, she called me back and said, they're interested. They, they really want to do this story. So she and I spent hours on the phone interviewing, getting her information about the story to write it. And in that uh, fall on September Here's the here's the issue. It's September of 1994, Guidepost magazine. My article appeared. It's called Two Part Harmony. And in the little magazine, it's got a picture of me at the piano that my wife got the camera out and took. And and in the back of the magazine, they also put contact information for me. If you want to get more, find out more about Dave Combs and his music, here's his phone number and here's his address. Well, I can tell you to the day, almost to the minute, when that magazine hit the street, because it has a circulation of uh, three million people. Nice. (laughs) And so when it hit the street, my 800 number that was listed in the back of the magazine started ringing. Hmm. And SA, it did not stop ringing. You could put your hand on the receiver and pick it up. There's somebody there. It was just that, that, that much. And people wanted to know what, what I need to do to buy this CD of, or tape of Rachel's song. And that went on. I had to hire two people to just answer the phone and take the orders for Rachel's song. And then the funny story is that a couple of days later, my front doorbell rings and because my office was in my home, I was running Combs Music out of my basement. Front doorbell rings and it's my mailman. I go out to the front door and here he stands with this 
gray canvas bag that's too heavy for him to pick up. He has drug it up the driveway and he's standing there and he says, Dave, this is for you, but what in the world have you done? <laughs> he said, this thing's full of letters addressed to you. I thought, well, I just wrote a little article in Guideposts. I guess it's probably from that article. Hmm. And he kept, he, he would bring that, drag that bag down to my front door for several days. In two weeks time, I had heard from over 10,000 people wow. about that article in Morning Rachel's song. So that really kind of, that notched it up a whole level when I, I saw the value of a, a publicity article, you know, just like doing these podcasts. Uh, I enjoy talking about my music and there's no substitute for talking with somebody and having dozens or hundreds or thousands of people listen and maybe, maybe be interested in finding out more about whatever it is you're talking about. So that little article really put me on the map in terms of, of publicity. I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, the time frame you're talking about in, in today's world, being in large publications still has like that magnitude and effect if the article is written correctly and it's released in the right magazine with the right promotion behind it. So, mm -hmm. so with that, my next question is, with the perception of everything is where it is right now, if you could go back in time and change anything, right? Let's say you have five minute frame to go back to and talk to yourself and tell yourself something. When would you go back to and what would you say to yourself? Well, I think that uh, probably accelerating the uh, exposure that I did once I had reached a, a fairly high level, I, the mistake that I made was I think I backed off a little bit on the, the pressure, the, the, the pedal that I was, you know, the, the gas pedal, so to speak. And that probably in retrospect, because at the time, when I very first started, I, it was me and about two other other musicians doing what I was doing, selling it in uh, gift shops. I think we actually created what now is called the play and sell market. Back in the mid '80s, there wasn't there wasn't such a thing. So what happened was that the big guys, the big record companies, realized every time they would go in a gift shop they would see Dave Combs music. And so they were, the light bulb went on theirs and the, the gift shops were selling a hundred times more music of a particular album than a record store was. And as you know, the record stores eventually just died away. There aren't, I don't think there's hardly any left. So my, I guess I would tell myself to keep the foot on, keep your foot on the gas. Even, if, even though you're enjoying some success, don't, uh, don't just uh, pat yourself on the back and say you have arrived. I probably could have done more in terms of going further and and expanding the the, the my business of music, and and one thing that I did not do was go beyond hiring just one person. I hired one office manager to help me manage my my music business, but I did not I, I just did not have the uh, 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 goal of running a big music company. You know, if you know what I mean. I didn't want to start bringing in other artists and selling other by other people's CDs through my same channel. I was pretty well satisfied with what I had already created. And so I probably could have done more with what I had done, but uh, I really don't have very many regrets. Not really, because it, it gave me a good lifestyle. I was able to quit my job in 1992 and my wife, uh, she was the assistant secretary of the treasury in Washington working for, President H.W. Uh, Bush at the time. And so 
unfortunately, we can talk about this perhaps another time, but her mother had Alzheimer's. And so she needed to come from Washington back to North Carolina to take care of her mother. Her dad was 10 years older than her mother and it was wearing him out. So she and I both decided that we needed to move from Maryland back to North Carolina, which she, she quit her job and came back and, and did that. And AT&T moved me back to North Carolina. So we re relocated back literally within the same neighborhood that I had left three years earlier. So um, I, taking care of family and family matters really was a, a key, key element there. Nice. But nice. that really was my only, maybe it's not a regret. It's, it's something I look back. I probably could have done more with my music had I just kept my foot on the gas pedal. I think that's a good segue that you brought up your wife, Linda. And so my next question is like, you know, just talking about you've been on this run for essentially based upon the time frames that you're talking about, roughly about 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so in this entire time on this journey, right, you've been married to her as well. So like my next question is like, how do you currently juggle and manage your work life with all your, you know, endeavors that you're currently doing? Well, that's that is a, 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 a juggle because my wife is currently the controller of the state of North Carolina. She has 200 people working for her in Raleigh, North Carolina, running the office of the state controller. She manages a, a, a very significant part of the finances of the state of North Carolina. And she is appointed to that position, appointed by the governor, but confirmed by the House and the Senate of North Carolina. And her term is up this, this coming June. So she only has a few months left before she will retire. But uh, juggling her uh, job and, and my music business has been, we, we've managed it because she's been supportive of what I do and I certainly support what she does. She was the controller of the United States in Washington, D.C. And, and, uh, and under George W. Bush. And then during those years, I basically put my music on hold, sort of, and I went to Washington to be with her. And I became the, the chief information officer for the United States Department of Agriculture. I got back into my role as an IT person. So I managed IT for the entire USDA and did that for five years. But so we've, we've worked with each other and we've been married. It'll be 52 years this wow. coming June. So we've, we've supported each other and, and in our career, my career and of course my music business, it, for those 10 years from when I quit my job until when she went back to Washington, uh, that uh, we were working the music business together. You know, I would be answering phone, packing orders, making phone calls, and she was helping as well. So it was a joint venture. And uh, we, and she did that while balancing the taking care of her, her mother's Alzheimer's. Her mother and father both passed away in, in 1999. So, that decade of or the 90s was really tough with her having to take care of her parents and me and my music business. But we managed it. And then the 2000s then evolve into, of course, CDs and hard music sales have kind of declined and everything now is digital. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's been good because or even with, for example, with the pandemic and her and her job with Raleigh, she has been working, running the show from our, our office in our library in our home, as have all 200 of her people. They've been working from home all through this pandemic. You know, this technology of Zoom and all the, the video conferencing, you know, it's like you're right next door 
to somebody. It's not quite like being physically with them in the, in the office, but it's pretty close. But we have managed. It's definitely very, very interesting. I mean, in hearing, like, you're, 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 you're obviously it's a power couple situation in that household. So, like, going into, like, your morning routines, like, I, what does your morning routines look like with you and Linda then? Well, we'll get up and have breakfast uh, either together if, or if I sleep in a little later, she'll have her breakfast and I'll catch her at the end of hers. But we'll have a little chat. And then her morning really starts with a, a phone call at nine o'clock with her senior staff person or uh, number two. And he he and she will go have their call and conference starting at nine. And basically, I leave her alone in the in her in the library office where she is all day until about five o'clock or five thirty when she says, well, I'm done for the day finally. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the meantime, I'm, I'm on my computer, uh, lining up, uh, hosts for, uh, appearances on podcasts and keep checking my emails and, uh, answering any correspondence that I get from people, some from fans. I still get emails from people telling me about my music and how much it touched their lives. So I always answer those. So I spend my day really uh, thinking about how can I uh, spread the word of my music. And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, connect with as many uh, movers and shakers in the podcast world or the media world as I can. And uh, eventually, I think I would love to have an appearance on, you know, a, a TV show or something where I can literally play Rachel's song and talk about the music. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to spend a, an afternoon with, with Mike Huckabee on his show. I, he, he loves music, and I think I could, we could have a wonderful ending of the show with him on me playing Rachel's song with the band and things like that. I, so I'm, I'm still working on how do I get myself involved and connected with these kind of people. And you just never know who, who knows somebody, whoever hears your podcast that says, hmm, I'd like to talk to that Combs guy. So it's 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 one of those things you just keep at it. You just keep keep going. I think it's interesting that you brought that up because I mean I, I saw your interview with Jack Canfield, and it, those that don't know who Jack is, I mean he's a hell of an author as well. And it kind of leads me to like my next question is what you just said kind of depicts kind of like where you are right now. And again, you don't know who's listening to what, and then somebody may raise their hand, and you may go from Jack to Boston Cage to to Oprah to there's no telling, right? So, sure. So, part of this, this, this book thing. And again, going from Jack is like, what books have you read to kind of help you to get to where you are right now? And like your journey, like the past 40 years, what's one book that you could think about that you would want to recommend a person to read? Wow. You go all the way back to, uh, uh, the power of positive thinking. Uh, you know, that was a great book that way back when that I thought was great. There's cyber, cyber, cyber cybernetics is another book about how to think about success and what you imagine and visualize will come to be. And of course, Jack Canfield himself has written, I think the, the Bible on success, it's called the success principles. If you, <laughs> you probably got that book and it, <laughs> it is like an MBA or a, I don't know, not an MBA is, is a PhD in business. Mm-hmm. If you read that, his book and, and Jack is a, has become a really good supporter of mine. He wrote the forward to my book. And uh, I consider him a really wonderful friend and person. And uh, his book, The Success Principles, I think is probably the required reading for an entrepreneur this day and time. It's one of my favorites. 
Nice. So, I mean, that's a hell of a segue. I mean, let, let's talk about like your book. I mean, obviously you've had a hell of a career. You have all these different stories. And as I'm listening to you, like you're, you're, you're telling these stories so fluently, right? But you've written these stories as well. And I think that's what's making you be able to tap into that resource to tell these stories so vividly. So let's talk about like in your book, like, you know, like what's the process of that book? Like what stories are really in this book and what are your goals for this book? Well, I tried to basically make it a show, not tell, if you know what I mean. I wanted to show people what I was talking about, not just tell a bunch of facts. I wanted to bring them into, for example, I wanted them to come with me into the studio and hear and experience the recording of Rachel's song and some of the other songs that I, I've recorded. Those experiences are so um, real and uh energizing and like can be life changing. And so I tried really hard in my book to uh, show them what it was like and let them in their mind's eye hear it. Put on the put on the CD of Rachel's song while you're reading this and and close your eyes and and just picture yourself in the studio with me as 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 Gary Prem is recording this. So I, I did that through a lot of my recordings and I talked about also these the this decision process of how did I go from deciding to go from one gift shop to how did I get to a thousand? Mm -hmm. That story is in, in the, in the book as well of, of, of that. And then another story we haven't talked about was how did I know where to market my music to in the gift shops? The story of how did I know where the tourist towns were? Mm -hmm. And I had, and I had realized that my customers were going to be ones that were, fresh new customers in a gift shop, a gift shop that's in like uh, Pinehurst, North Carolina, where it's golf, you know, they, all the golfers come in to play golf. Well, while the golfers are playing golf, their spouse is usually over in the village of Pinehurst shopping. Hmm. Well, they have a brand new set of, of tourists that are coming into town every week, hmm. you know? And so it's an ideal situation where you don't have to try to cater just to your local population. And so how I, uh, how I, basically calculated where the tourist towns in the entire country were that story is is in the book hmm. and um, so i tried to for make it so that an entrepreneur reading the book would hopefully gain some in, insight into an in, inspiration and encouragement for their process whether it's music or whatever their product is it doesn't really matter you know even jack canfield said he says my book is kind of a primer mm -hmm. on how to get something out you know, you start with something small and how do you get it out? And so I, the book is really taking people from that very first song through the recording, the albums, the, the gift shops, the business, and then finally the evolution from physical product into the uh, streaming and downloading world where we now we're on Pandora and Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, you name all the, the, the streaming and download sites, Amazon, you know, Amazon has completely turned the world upside down in terms of publishing books. You know, there's this print on demand. You order one book, they print one book. There's no more of these boxes of books in your garage <laughs> all the time. So my book is really structured to take people on my journey with me and not just tell them what happened, but to try to show them and have them feel the same emotions and insights and sights and sounds that I did as I was going through that process. I think it's definitely interesting because I mean, I, I, I could definitely hear like the, the whole MBA behind, like, again, you, you're, you're, you're promoting and talking about music, but it's so much 
business development behind it. And I want to kind of allude to that a little bit more, right? So he's talking about the book, and the book is telling the story of the music. And then when you land on the music, then you purchase the music. But in addition to it, like you're thinking about units per transaction. So you got the book, you got the music, you got the composition, and then you have all these different elements. So you're not just going to buy one thing from Dave. Essentially, as the journey progresses, you're going to buy three to four of each one of these songs. So I want you to kind of really talk about like, how did you come up with this concept? And I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it to light scaling. Like, like how did you come up with the idea to scale what you're doing to the magnitude that it is right now? Well, it was really a simpler, the matter of replication when you have something successful and you just simply replicate it. But in terms of the music, uh, I'm fortunate that I have 15 albums. I've, I've recorded, I think it's about 170 titles. Now, of course, I didn't write all of those because some of those are popular. Other, I did covers of other people's songs, but I wrote over 120. Mm -hmm. But just knowing that it was a matter of numbers, you know, sometimes if you're, on, if you're a one, one shot wonder, it's really tough unless you're really, really, really lucky. But you need to have a, a whole catalog or a, a, a list of music that or whatever it is that you're selling so that you have more than one thing for people to, to purchase. As you, as you said, when they buy a Rachel song, they like that. They want, you want them to come back and purchase, you know, Beautiful Thoughts album or Springtime Reflections or, or whatever album it is, Discover Tranquility. There's all, you know, I have seven albums of instrumental music I've written, four albums of favorite hymns. You know, I'm a, I'm a religious person. I'm a Baptist by, by religion. And so I'm, church music has always been a big part of my life. So naturally, I did albums of favorite hymns. So I have four of those. But I also have a patriotic album called Celebrate Freedom. Now, that album was created because back in the Desert Storm days, when, we were, when Saddam Hussein was attacking Saudi Arabia, all those oil fields on fire and all that, and we went to war against this tyrant, that's when the country was basically unified with a very uh, patriotic mood. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I realized that I needed to do something too. And so I, my, one of my albums, I said, I'm going to record an album of patriotic songs. And I'm going to call the album, the title of it is Celebrate Freedom. Mm -hmm. Because the word freedom is something you're hearing a lot these days with all that's going on in Ukraine and bless their hearts, those people are fighting for their freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it means so much. It's really a deep-seated emotion and, and goal. So I decided I'm going to do an album, and I'm going to take the proceeds from this album and, and basically fund a, an endowed scholarship at Wake Forest University in the MBA program. And so we did. Linda and I found, funded the Combs Music Celebrate Freedom Scholarship, and it's funded, and its recipients are basically targeted towards the military. Mm -hmm. Any uh, military person that wants to apply to get their MBA, they're eligible to apply for this scholarship. So that's what we did, and this was in the in 1990s when uh, Desert Storm was a, a, about. So that was the impetus for one of my albums, and then of course I did a, one of popular songs, my favorite popular songs like Misty and Moore and Moon River, all those old, good old songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's my progression was I needed to produce something new. But after a while, 
I became my own competition, if you know what I mean. There, everybody's not going to buy 15 albums of my music. Now, there are some people that did, thank, thank goodness, and I really appreciate those. But sometimes people are like, I've got four or five, that's enough. So if you, if you draw it out, the curve out of your sales, the repeat sales, again, it's one of those curves that goes up and then down. You know, at, initially, when I did my first album, I did a survey. Uh, had some students do a survey of how many of my customers that had bought out Rachel's song, how many of you all would buy another album if they were to produce one? Mm-hmm. Virtually 100%. I mean, it was, yeah, when's he going to come out? You know, and that was true. I, I'd send out a mailing and almost 100% come back and they'd buy the second album. Mm-hmm. Well, I did the third. Well, it was, maybe it dropped down to 95%. Fourth, about 90%. And fifth, you know, maybe 85. Well, you get the picture. After a while, your repeat sales to your existing customer base trails off. So then you have to change your your thinking instead of, I I can't just be marketing to one set of people all the time. I got to find new customers. And that's where I am today with my book and my music and the internet and podcasting. I'm trying to find and reach a whole new set of people that I, I hope that my music will touch them in the same fashion that it did all the people that did that previously bought Rachel's song. Nice. So, I mean, those that, you know, if you understand growth strategy, I mean, he's clearly depicting like touching on a, on a resisting product and touching into new consumer bases. So that's like a growth strategy plan, right? Which is it was just, it's ingenious, right? So you tap into a whole new market. So what I want you to do right now is I want to ask you a question about like the final words of wisdom. You're, you're talking to not necessarily your target audience, but you're talking to musicians generally, right? And they're up and coming and they're listening to you and saying, okay, not only is he a successful artist, but he's also successful at his art becoming a business. So what words of insight would you give to them to help them on their journey moving forward? Well, I have basically, it's kind of a sequence of four or five things that principles that I, I think they need to adhere to. Number one is you have to have a quality product. You need to create something, your music, whatever. It needs to be a, something that is, it doesn't sound like something that you just, you know, recorded in, in the back, back room someplace. You need to have it sound as good as possible. So you write a good song and you get it recorded or produced yourself. Or if you're a performer, that's great. But or if you're not a performer, get hooked up with some of their, these studio musicians will do it for a fight. You know, you can hire somebody to do a demo like I did of, with Gary Prim. And so you need to get your, a good product and then basically get it produced in a good format or form that you can, can offer it to hear people to hear it. And that today is on an MP3 file or, you know, electronically you can send it to somebody to listen to. And then number three is you need to find out or determine in your own mind, who is your customer? Who's your audience? Who are you appealing to? What, what are the demographics or geographics of the audience that you're trying to appeal to? In my case, it was, and I, it was 35 and up female mainly and through uh, gift shops and tourist areas. I knew that. Well, for whatever it is you're doing or your music, who is your audience and you know, what are their demographics and geographics? And number three then is how do you get reached out to them? What are the way, how, think of outside the box, how many different ways can you put that music 
in front of in into their into their ears how can you make sure they hear it and so you think about all the different ways you can do that and make your list and then you essentially see can i monetize this is there a way for me to sell this will they pay money for to hear my music and uh certainly you can get paid through streaming and that kind of thing but you're only going to get paid 0.2 pennies per stream so don't count on making a million dollars off of streaming real quick. Uh, it's that's another whole subject. Mm -hmm. So so find ways to reach that that audience, and then once you have figured out you know, a, a bunch of ways you can do it, experiment and find try some of these and see how it works. See 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 if any of your strategies of getting it in front of people, and it may mean and if you're a performing musician, it may mean. You getting out there and performing it in, in certain venues, whether it's local clubs or or if depending on what kind, if it's religious and, you know, church audiences, if it's, uh, you know, all, there's all kinds of venues for you to perform your music. Mm -hmm. And then you figure out, well, which one of those did I may have the most impact with and where did I reach the most people? Or if you're doing back of the room sales of your music kind of thing, where did I really get success with with my music? And then once you've nailed it down to one or two different channels of, of way to, to promote and sell your music, figure out how to replicate that. How can I multiply that effect? And maybe you need to have somebody help you. And if, if so, if you have the wherewithal to hire somebody to help you promote something. And, but I would not count on being picked up by a major label or that kind of thing. That's, that can happen. Yes, it can. But uh, a lot of times, even the big name artists will tell you their beginnings were there. They were out there with shoe leather, you know, promoting, handing out their own music and getting people to play it. And then that persistence of going after what you already know is your market, your audience and your customers and your channels of, of how you're going to get it to them and just work it, work it. And it's not going to and be patient. I think the you have got to have a big load of patience because it's not going to happen probably overnight. And so you need to be persistent and patient and just work at it. And as Jack Canfield says, there's something called the law of action. Mm -hmm. If you, if you just stand around, and don't do anything, nothing's going to happen. You just have to keep at it, keep persistent and, and keep acting and doing things that move you forward. And I think that's kind of the, how I would wrap it up for any musicians listening to me today that uh, first of all have a great product and if you're a great musician a singer or performer or an instrumentalist whatever god bless you and and keep going keep using your gift and then go down these steps of trying to find the best way to promote and and spread the word about your music I think I think you're you're a living breeding example of of the Ansoff Matrix, and and those that don't know what the Ansoff Matrix, I would definitely say take some time to look it up. But just hearing him talk about like market penetration, he like all his stories that he has told us is all about how he's penetrated the market, penetrated the market, penetrated the market, and then now he's at the point to where he's doing market development. He's reaching out with the same products to a new market, and it's a hell of a thing to see it live. Like you may hear it in theory. But to see that this man is doing it live is, is a hell of a testament to who you are. And I, I definitely appreciate you being on the show today. Um, so how do people get in contact with you? How do they communicate with you online right now? Well, the, it's very simple. I have a website called combsmusic.com, C-O-M-B-S music.com. 
And when you go on the website, you will see my picture of my book on the left side of the uh, of the, the, the website. And on the on the other side, you'll see the picture of my CD of Rachel's song. And you can click on links. And uh, if you click on around the book, it'll take you to Amazon where you can buy the book or you click on the CD. You can you can hear samples of it and then you can go to Amazon and buy it or you can. I have a, a local company here that uh, physically carries my music. You can call them. And if you want to talk to a live person, you can call Combs Music and talk to somebody. But usually most people will just click on the links on my website and you can go on there and sample it. And, and for those that play an instrument, play the piano, I have gone to the trouble of transcribing the music for all of my original music and all of my favorite hymns albums. And I'm working on the, the music from the Celebrate Freedom album as well. So that if you play the piano, you can go at, to a, a place called Sheet Music Plus, And you can download a, uh, the sheet music of my music for $4.99 and print that PDF and be playing it in 10 minutes. It's instant download and purchase of the sheet music. And the music is note for note. I spend hours listening to the recording of Gary Prim performing it and looking at the notes on the paper and making sure every note that I hear is on that, that the sheet music. So if you like to play the music and you're, let's say, an intermediate level piano player, you can play along with the albums of all of my music. And it really, by the way, it sounds really good to put on the CD with all Gary's other instrumentation, strings and horns and all the other stuff, and sit down at your piano and play along with it. Man, it sounds like you're playing with an orchestra. So. Uh, but I encourage people to do that. But that the links to that are also on my website, combsmusic.com. And if you want to touch base with me, I, my email is also very simple, dave at combsmusic.com. And I answer all my emails, and I'd love to hear from people about how my music has touched their life. So, I mean, go, closing out with that, and then I want to kind of go into like a bonus, a couple bonus questions, right? And okay. the first bonus question that I have for you is, you know, we, we keep hearing Rachel, Rachel song, Rachel song. We heard the story about Rachel. But I mean, essentially, when you name this song, correct me if my calculations are wrong. It's been about 38 years, close, closing in on 40 years. So have you had a sit down with Rachel since she's become an adult and talked about the history of this song that's named after her? Yes, we uh, we have been in touch with Rachel and her family. And for obvious reasons, I have been protective of her privacy all these years. So I don't tell people what her last name is or where she lives, but she is a fabulous young, young woman, obviously. And uh, I remember when she was little, she would always listen to Rachel's song and, and she would say, that's my song. <laughs> and then she's really the only one that could, lead, could technically and correctly say that was her song. It was my song. Interesting. So another person that, that, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, probably if my count's correct, probably almost a couple dozen times on here was essentially the person that, that played it on the recording. So Gary, and, and again, like, how did you even come to find Gary? And again, you could have played it yourself. So my question is like, why did you let Gary play the music for you? Well, I was working with, uh, with Western Electric AT&T in Nashville, Tennessee at the time on a, an assignment where I was having to work with a factory that was there. And Linda said, uh, my wife said, well, while you're in Nashville, why don't you get a demo recording made of Rachel's song, something we can have just as a, to enjoy ourselves. And so I said, okay. 
So I went driving around downtown Nashville one evening after work to find a recording studio that I could possibly get somebody to record Rachel's song. Well, in Nashville that, at that time, as we say in down south, we said they rolled up the sidewalks at five o'clock or 530. You know, everybody went home. It was closed. Well, it wasn't really true, though. In the recording industry, I don't think they hardly ever close technically. But uh, I was driving down a, a street called Roy Acuff Place and right in Music Square there in Nashville. And on the right was a building. It looked like an old barn shaped building. And then out front, it had a, a water wheel a mock-up of a, you know, an old mill wheel. And so it, the sign on the side front of the building said the music mill. So I thought, oh, well, this is encouraging. So I drove around the corner and pulled in their parking lot and I looked through the glass doors and there was a, a man sitting at a desk. And so I, okay. So I got out, knocked on the door and he came to the door and unlocked it and opened it up. And he says, uh, hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? And I said, yeah, I, I'm Dave Combs. I'm looking for a studio to record a demo of a song that I've written. And he invited me in. And, and as I came into the room, the, the lobby, I looked up and here's a great big picture of Glenn Campbell and uh, Alabama, the group and the Forrester sisters. And there's gold records and platinum records all over the place. And, and George looks at me and he says, well, well, Dave, you're in one. This is a studio. So he gave me a great tour of the place and there wasn't anybody recording at the time. So I got to see all the studio A and everything, control room. I was just blown away. I'd never been in a studio. So I said, well, all right, George, I, I need a piano player that can play my song. Do you have any suggestions? And he thought for a second, see, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's this guy, Gary Prim that I know. I go to church with him. He's a great studio musician. Let me look up his phone number and give it to you and you can, he'll do it for you. So he went over to his Rolodex and wrote down his, Gary's phone number for me and gave it to me a piece of paper. So I went, took that, I thanked him and left, went back to my hotel room and I picked up the phone, called Gary Prim hmm. and got his answering machine. And so I left a message and about 30 minutes, he called back and he said, this is Gary Prim, can I help you? And I said, yeah, Gary, I'm, Told him what I needed about right, recording a, a song, a demo of a song I'd written called Rachel's Song. <clears throat> and he says, well, sure, just uh, tell you what, send me a cassette tape of you playing it and then send me a lead sheet for it. And I said, okay, what's a lead sheet? I, this was the, to show you how naive I was in the music business. I didn't even know what a lead sheet was. And I, he's, I said, what's a lead sheet? And he says, well, it's just the melody and the chords written out. And I said, oh, I've got that. I just didn't know what to call it. Mm -hmm. So I went back home after I finished that week and, and I mailed Gary that. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, we uh, met in a studio. Now it was a, a little tiny studio across the street from the music mill. Music mill was like $125 an hour plus engineer, which was more money than you know I needed to spend on a demo. But the little studio in an old, what used to be a rent house across the street was $15 an hour plus engineer, which was a whole lot more reasonable. So on a Friday night, August 22nd, 1986, I'll never forget, I met Gary Prim at this little studio. He came in walking into the studio carrying his Yamaha DX7 synthesizer under his arm. And he sets that down and, and goes over to the piano and there's a little baby grand Yamaha piano in the, the studio. And he starts playing around and 
I'm back in the control room with the engineer. And so I'm hearing Gary play around with the, the piano. And then finally he says, okay, let's, I think I'm ready to let's do a take. Mm -hmm. So the control engineer, and we're recording by the way, on what was two inch tape, mm -hmm. 30 inch per second, big reel about like this, the, each reel weighed about 12, 15 pounds. And it would only record 13 minutes of music on a reel. So it's, but it was 24 track. And so he, that's the machine we recorded it on. So he got tracks one and two set up for stereo on the piano. Okay, Gary, push record, we're rolling. And so Gary starts playing Rachel's song. Well, I'm in there with the recording engineer hearing all this on the monitor speakers. I couldn't believe my ears. You know, like you said, I can play Rachel's song and I had been playing it. But not like this. I mean, this when you hear a professional musician in a studio perform something that's basically a head arrangement. They're not playing something written out. Mm -hmm. They're extemporaneously performing. And it's just amazing. So I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Well, he got through part of it and he stopped and he said, let's do that again. Rewind it. I can do better than that. So he did the second time. And the second time through, he played it flawlessly. I mean, he played the verse two times through and, and the chorus, and then he uh, surprisingly kicked it up a half a step instantly from key of C to key of D flat, like boom, boom. It, there was no modulation to it. It was just an instant thing, and it really got your attention, and it was great. So I'm, I'm just not believing what I'm hearing. So Gary finishes that, and I thought, wow, this is great. And Gary says, I'm not done yet. I need to add some more instruments. He said, I want to double the piano part on an electric piano. I thought, okay, how do, how do you do that? So he sets up the synthesizer and puts a headset on like you've got on now and sits there and listening to himself play on the piano. He plays on the keyboard, the electric piano part, and he doubles exactly what he played tight. I mean, it was tight. You, it's like he was playing the same note as a MIDI note almost in music terms. It was tight. I couldn't believe it. And then he finished that and he said, well, I need to add some strings. So we got two more tracks set up, back on the headset, put the string sound on, played some strings along him. Boy, it's sounding really full. And he added more strings, high strings and low strings. And then he added some horns. He said, I right in the middle there where we're changing keys up to D flat, said, I want to give that a little oomph with a, some horns leading into that, that transition, which he did. When you listen to the recording of Rachel's song, you can, now that I've described this, you yeah. can kind of, you can hear all those, that instrumentation going on because he starts out on the recording with just piano. Mm -hmm. And then he adds in the electric piano doubling. Mm -hmm. Then he adds in some strings and you know, it just, it just builds. And I've, I, you can imagine, I am blown away by the professionalism of this recording. It sounded to me as good as any recording I'd ever heard on a radio anywhere. So that's to answer your question about why don't I play it versus Gary Prim. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, an amateur musician like me versus a professional recording engineer like Gary. It's just uh, a night and day difference in terms of the, the, the quality of the product that they produce there. He is so gifted and he and I have done all of my albums. We have recorded all 170 of those songs together. And Gary is just a, he's a wonderful person. He's now, and, and has always been thought of highly, but now he is one of the most sought after 
keyboard musicians in, in Nashville. You ask anybody in Nashville, if you go there, do you know Gary Prem is a keyboard? Oh yeah, we know Gary. He is so highly thought of and is a wonderful, wonderful musician. Yeah, I'm happy I asked that question because I mean, like now that you explained it, it, it makes perfect sense. And 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 for the listener that's listening right now, earlier on in, in in answering that question, you alluded to meeting George Clinton. Are you talking about like P Funk George Clinton? No, no, this was a oh. different George Clinton. Okay. He, a different. He was a recording engineer in Nashville. And much, he since bless his heart passed away, mm-hmm. but they wrote a big article about him in the Nashville magazine uh, newspaper about how much loved he was, and he was a gentle soul and a wonderful person. Nice, nice. So, I mean, with that, I mean, to kind of like close everything out, I mean, I got one last bonus question for you. And for you, you know, being that you've had such a a wonderful life and you did all these different things and to hear what you've done with music, which most artists are striving to do. My next question is for you, if you could spend 24 hours with anyone dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Wow, that is really a great question. Um, you know, it would be probably a musician and I'm, I'm struggling for picking which one because I was influenced by so many. For example, I love, I love Chet Atkins on the guitar. I love Floyd Kramer on the piano. I love Henry Mancini with his orchestras and the, and piano arrangements. Uh, uh, and I, I love Roger Williams, I guess maybe Roger Williams is the guy. Uh, I was fortunate to hear, Linda and I were able to hear him in one of his last concerts when he was living, mm-hmm. when we were in Stewart, Florida. He came down to the little theater there and and we heard him live. And he was, I think he was 80, I can't remember how old he was, but he was in his 80s at that point. He put on a two and a half hour show, no intermission and energy, unbelievable. And of course his talent and energy and his uh his philosophy of life and dedication to his music was just so inspiring. If I, if I could bring him back to life and spend a, a 24 hours and just be with Roger Williams for that time, I would just feel so blessed because he was a unique, wonderful, masterful human being and a master at music. He, he, uh, he inspired us all. Mr. Piano. It makes sense. Definitely makes sense. So going into closing, uh, I always like to give anyone that I'm interviewing an opportunity to, to become the host of the Boston Cage podcast. So that way you can kind of ask me any questions that may have come up during this interview. So the show is yours. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? Well, I guess uh, how many of these kind of shows have you done over the years now? So I've released a hundred and something and we've recorded about 250. Wow. So out of all of those, do you feel like that, that I think you, I know the answer to this question, but do you feel like that you get more out of these interviews than even your audience does? I would say yes. Cause I like <laughs> the build up to it. I mean, like before every show, like just doing my due diligence and, and reviewing your background and looking at your profiles and listening to other interviews, it just kind of, I zone in to your stroke mm-hmm. of genius. So in this conversation, like we could really stay bar for bar and have this conversation. So I wanted to make sure I'm delivering that content to the listener as well. Well, I want to compliment you. First of all, not every host that I have ever interviewed with goes to the extent of doing their homework and their due diligence on their, their guests. And I, from my perspective, uh, you're golden in that category. You're, you're in a class by yourself. And uh, I really applaud you for that. And thank you for doing that for, for my story and 
for inviting me on and it's been a real pleasure and I hope that we will now stay in touch and uh, I wish you the best in your your endeavors with your podcast. It's a crowded world out there with podcasts, but I think you're on to something. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate that, especially coming from you, uh, being that you're, I could, you know, allude to this. I think you're half and half. You're you're highly creative, but you're also highly analytical at the same time. So speaking to someone of that caliber, and that, that's kind of the shadow that I'm following in. I definitely appreciate that. Well, you're quite welcome, and uh, you have a great rest of the day. And thank you again for having me as your guest. It's been my pleasure. Great. S.A. Grant, over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 233 boss. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss in Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.